Well, good afternoon and welcome. It is an honor, it is a privilege that uh, we have such a large turnout for this, and we thank you for coming. Uh, I am Nick Zola. I teach New Testament here at Pepperdine. Douglas Jacoby is beside me, and we'll each introduce ourselves in a moment. The class that you are attending, and it's being recorded, so I'm stating it for the recording, although I'm sure that you can read as well. Uh, it is Church of Christ and International Churches of Christ, The Rift and the Repair. So this is a two-part class. You're obviously in, in part one, and we will continue part two uh, after a short break. So our plan is to give you enough time for questions, but the overall gist is that we're going to go through, the first half will be the rift, what happened between the International Churches of Christ and the Church of Christ, uh, where the International Churches of Christ came from and so forth in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s, and then get up to about the early 2000s with the International Churches of Christ, end the first class there, move to question time, and then pick up the second class after that. So let me uh, say a moment or word about, uh, about each of us and tell you who we are and uh, whom we represent and who, whom we do not represent, <laughs> um, just to make that very clear. Uh, so again, I'm, I'm Nick Zola. I teach New Testament uh, here at, at Pepperdine. This is my third year at, at Pepperdine. I did my PhD uh, at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Uh, and before that, I did uh, a master's in New Testament at Abilene Christian University, also in Texas. Um, my background is in the International Churches of Christ. So I did not grow up going to church at all. Uh, and I became a Christian uh, in high school. I was invited to church uh, in high school uh, in San Diego. And then from there, uh, in, in the San Diego Church of Christ, which was part of the International Churches of Christ. From there, moved to Boston, was part of the Boston Church of Christ. Um, and then from there, went to Abilene Christian, where I started meeting with what in the International Churches of Christ was called the Mainline Church of Christ. Uh, and then from there, kind of made a transition and discovered more of, of my family, in a sense, uh, is the way I might put it. And, um, and so from that point forward, have had uh, a foot in more parts of the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement than I had begun. So did a degree at, at ACU, continued to meet with the Church of Christ there, went on to Baylor, continued to meet with the Church of Christ there, was hired for my first teaching position at Lincoln Christian University, which is actually part of the independent Christian churches, so another part of the Stone Campbell Movement, and then from there have come here to, to Pepperdine. And then Doug will introduce himself as well. Um, I'm Douglas Jacoby. I was not brought up in the church. We went to the Episcopalian church, but the first time I was reached out to was by, this is before there was an ICOC in what we would call the Crossroads Movement. Um, after Duke, I went- Which we'll tell you about in just one We moment. will, we're gonna give you, and, and the first session will be more uh, content laden, probably less time for questions, but probably a lot more time in the second one. I think if so. it's going the way we think it will. Um, when I, I graduated from Harvard with a master's uh, in theological studies and went on the went to London. We planted a church there in 1982 that eventually became more than 2,000 people and probably through the churches they planted and so forth, probably maybe 30,000 or so. Um, I was on staff for 20 years uh, in the UK, in Sweden, in Australia, and uh, various parts of the United States. Right now I'm independent. Lincoln Christian University is where I adjunct in the MA program in Bible and Theology. Been doing that for seven years, teaching apologetics and things like that. And um, I'm a member of the International Church of Christ in Atlanta. Um, I love the church. I know so many people. It's been the spiritual home 
for me almost as far back as I can remember, and I'm honored to speak today. Also, I've had the benefit of visiting hundreds of congregations in the ICOC, hundreds. So, um, first-hand knowledge. Yes, very good. Thank you. Uh, and I guess, and let's just end by saying whom we don't represent here, ah. right? So basically anybody else than ourselves. Um, You're representing me? <laughs> I'm not representing you either. Oh. <laughs> uh, be that way. <laughs> we, we met about 20 years ago. So. <laughs> More or less. Yeah. Uh, and so, so it, it is important for us to say that, right? So we are not standing here representing either the Churches of Christ or the International Churches of Christ. We are representing our, ourselves as people who have studied both of these movements to some degree to try to understand where they each came from, why they broke apart, and, and, and how they are beginning to come together in certain ways. And, and that is our goal, as we'll say uh, in just a moment, in terms of what our purposes are today. Just real quick, I want to get some, some thank yous in place. Um, some of these people are here. Some of them will be listening to this recording later, I have no doubt. Uh, and so I wanted to make sure that I acknowledge several people that I had either phone conversations with or face-to-face -face conversations with uh, to do additional research in addition to other reading research that both of us have done and that we've lived through. Uh, so Jerry Rushford, uh, who used to run the Pepperdine Bible Lectures, has been very helpful. Jerry Jones, uh, who was uh, in the ICOC for, for a good time. John Wilson, who is present here. Uh, Roger Lamb, who continues to um, keep uh, records of what the ICOC is moving into and towards. Greg Marutsky, who is working here in Los Angeles uh, in the ICOC. Dave Pachta, who does work in various quarters of the ICOC. And then let me thank Mike Pope, who's not present here, but who currently runs the Pepperdine Bible Lectures uh, and Harbor for giving us this spot on the program. We are grateful to all of that. Um, and then let us then go on to the, the meat of what it is that we're doing here and specifically what we are not doing here um, as well. Here's what I want to say to begin with. We are aware that the International Churches of Christ, the Boston Movement, the Crossroads Movement in, in, its, in its various phases has caused damage in the past. And, and we don't want to disregard that damage. We don't want to pretend that that damage has not occurred. So we want to acknowledge that. We want to recognize that there may well be people sitting here who have been damaged in some way and who are still feeling some of that damage and working through some of that damage. It is not our object to erase that or to overlook that or to pretend that that didn't occur. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, so we want to, to bring that into the room and make sure that we acknowledge that. At the same time, our, our focus is not to dwell on the damage particularly or necessarily. Our, our, our focus is to acknowledge it and then to see what we can do today to continue in the repair of that damage. And so, uh, our main purpose, uh, Doug will explain then. Is education with dialogue. Yes. <laughs> is that the right answer? Yes, <laughs> indeed. So we're, we're going to give you some history because uh, some of you are part of the ICOC or the COC, or maybe you were just intrigued what those initials stood for. <laughs> you want to find out. So we, we have to set it in, a, we have to give some history to talk about how um, this these basically end up becoming two movements. And then we want to talk about how they come together. As uh, Jerry Rushford put it, and when was this? This was 2005. Five? Yeah. Uh, renewing an interrupted family conversation. I was leading the International Teachers Seminar in 2006, invited people to speak from the Christian Church and the Church of Christ and the, main, and the ICOC. And I began by saying, you know, we're brothers. 
I mean, we're, we're cousins. I mean, how would your kids find out if you say, oh yeah, yeah, we have, uh, you have cousins, you know, they live about two miles from here. <laughs> how come you never told me? You know, I'm 30 years old now, I wish I had known. So it's a relational thing. And there's a rapprochement. Yeah, and so then I wanted to use a fancy word here just to impress you. Uh, That's Nick's word. But the word, yeah, Doug, Doug wanted to make sure that I made it clear this was my word and not his word. <laughs> uh, the, the word that I thought of as I was approaching all of this is this idea of rapprochement, right? Of, of coming back together again, a very fancy French word, which simply means drawing, drawing near again. And the implication is that you were once near before, right? You can't reapproach somebody if you weren't once already in their vicinity, sure. right? In their proximity. And, and that's what, in many ways, Doug and I are hoping to accomplish with this, is to, is to advance even further together as we come near together, as we recommit to dialogue, as we recommit to understanding that in many ways we are part of the very same family and the same team. Right, and I was baptized in the Churches of Christ, not the ICOC, because it didn't exist back in 1977. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't like that French word, how about glasnost and perestroika, that openness and restructuring, <laughs> looking at it from a... Now, now you like my word more, though, right? <laughs> you see? So, there are right. good words. <laughs> Go ahead, Devin. Right, so uh, our, first our class, first class has three sections. We'll have the dates, which we think, unlike some modern teachers and students, are important. Yeah. You don't know the dates of things. You don't know what preceded something else and what might have been a cause, might have been an effect. Then we'll look at the DNA of the movement, the ICOC, uh, which is good and bad. And we want to be very open about that and even looking at impact. Uh, that's the plan. Very good. All right. Uh, here's where. If you could root it to one particular maybe movement or event or, or catalyst is perhaps the right word, where does what becomes the International Churches of Christ begin? And one of the places that you could point to very easily would be in what's called the campus evangelism movement that began in the mid-60s in the Churches of Christ. Uh, I had the benefit when I was a student at Abilene Christian University, uh, Jim Beavis and Rex Vermillion came and gave a three-part class at the Abilene Christian University lectures on the campus evangelism program and what it was. And essentially what happened was, in the mid-60s, there was already a campus movement that was burgeoning in the United States. Things like Campus Crusade for Christ, for instance, and other things like that began to happen in the 1960s. In the Churches of Christ, they heard the same call and they said we need to jump onto this campus ministry movement bandwagon and begin getting campus ministries up and active again in our churches. Uh, there was something called the, the Bible Chair program that allowed, uh, very interestingly, people within um, religious organizations to function as a part of a university and uh, offer accredited classes, classes that you could take for credit in religion and get credit for that through the university. And the Churches of Christ had Bible chairs. They had Bible chairs in various places. And that Bible chair program became kind of the seat of this campus evangelism program and attracted many of the people who were most interested in, most interested in reaching students of the day. And that is what shifted eventually into the Crossroads Movement. One of the um, younger men who was influenced and inspired by this direction was a man named Charles Lucas, Chuck Lucas. And so we're taking you back to Gainesville, Florida. It's 1967. And the 14th Street Church of Christ, 
uh, sponsored a campus ministry on the campus of the University of Florida, which was renowned for being one of the top party schools in the entire world, probably in the solar system. I mean, they really party. My, my son actually went there. Um, a couple years later, they, they built, they got a beautiful building, very centri centrally located on Southwest uh, 2nd Avenue, called, and that was called Crossroads, the Crossroads Church, the Crossroads Ministry, and they began uh, to really go after uh, not staying off campus, but going on campus. So they went into the dorms, even into fraternities, which is pretty gutsy, and starting conversations and starting group discussions, which they called soul talks at that time. And it was a very, very effective. Uh, they also trained people to be campus ministers, and many scores were sent out around the United States. Maybe there's some in this room right now who themselves uh, went to Churches of Christ and began campus ministry. But it was like a ministry within the ministry. And I think um, in some places, even a church within a church, uh, which was, on, in hindsight, was probably not the best strategy. Is that enough yeah, for now? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Oh, I didn't mention, oh. No, it just switched, so. Okay, thank you. Continue on this one. I will continue. <laughs> now, Thomas Wayne McKean was one of uh, many who was baptized in 1972. We'll be coming back to him very soon. Um, he went to Philadelphia. He was sent to lead a campus ministry in the Philadelphia area, and then to Charleston, Illinois, Eastern Illinois University, uh, where he spent three years. He joined Roger Lamb, who preached there. Now, when I was baptized as an 18-year-old, no one told me, you're part of the Crossroads movement. I mean, I never heard of it, actually, until the following summer, uh, when some brothers in North Carolina said, we're driving down to Gainesville. We're going to go to Crossroads. I said, what? Well, we're going to hear Chuck Lucas. Who? Um, I had no idea what it was, but I went to an evangelism seminar and many times um, after that continued to go. 1978, as it turned out, my visit was the kind of the apex. This was the, the high watermark of the Crossroads Church. And I'm talking now statistically. What does that mean? I know it's a little obscure, about those one percents, that's a very low percentage, but let me tell you what that means. Uh, at the University of Florida, about 1% or more than 1% of the 30,000 students were part of Crossroads. 300 out of 30,000. In Gainesville, 100,000 people, 1% of those, over 1,000 were at Crossroads. And I've actually, so it's a small number, but I, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever seen that anywhere else where they actually managed to evangelize a city and a campus so that 1% were part of it. Um, the, it was a, an electrifying experience to visit there. The worship, the singing especially, all a cappella. None of this drum stuff. Uh, <laughs> well, by 1985, um, Chuck Lucas had been dismissed uh, for personal sin. The Crossroads era was gradually coming to an end, particularly as most of their ministers migrated to what is called the Boston Movement. Yeah, uh, very recently, Chuck Lucas passed away just uh, last year in 2018. This is his obituary. We won't read it to you, but it's uh, published in the Christian Chronicle. And, and so what happens, not obviously in 2018, but in 1985, when Chuck Lucas is dismissed for various reasons, a void occurs, you might say. Uh, by this time, Kip McKean has moved to Lexington. And we'll, these stories overlap, and so we'll pick you know, this story back up again in the next moment here. 
Uh, but by this time, Kip McKean, who had been in Charleston, Illinois, for uh, three years, leading a campus ministry there with Roger Lamb. And baptized hundreds. Yeah. Uh, this was almost unheard of. Highly successful, right? <laughs> Trained in the Crossroads Movement and sent out by the Crossroads Movement, as were many other campus ministers. Uh, receives the offer, receives an option to go to Lexington in Massachusetts and take over as not only the campus minister but as the head minister of the Lexington Church of Christ. And so he's already been there in, since 79. When Chuck Lucas is dismissed in 85, you have a series, you know, a network of people who have been connected to this Crossroads group who have been sent out by Crossroads who are now all over the country and who are now, in a sense, looking for a leader, looking for someone else to take over since Chuck Lucas well, is no longer present. In fairness, a number of them uh, migrated to Boston um, in the early 80s, had already been coming. Right. But not, not everyone was sure uh, what to do. And so we could say, in a sense, this is the point when the Crossroads Movement begins to shift into what eventually becomes called the Boston Movement and labeled as the Boston Movement. At the end of each of these segments, Doug and I will offer a series of assessments. Uh, and so, he, so here's the end of the Crossroads Movement as it transitions into the, what we'll call the Boston Movement. There were various strengths here. There were many strengths. Uh, there was an intense amount of Bible study and of prayer in the Crossroads movement, and there was an intense amount of evangelism. Doug mentioned the soul talks, right? I've heard stories about Chuck Lucas or others coming into a classroom to give a, to give a presentation or something like that uh, at the University of Florida and saying, raise your hand if you have not yet been invited to a soul talk yet. And one student in this class of I don't know how many, you know, scores and scores of students raised their hand and said, I've never been invited. And Chuck says, I'll speak to you at the end, right? Uh, and so they were highly evangelistic uh, uh, with, with, a, with a sincere and in, uh, intensity. Uh, the worship was powerful. It was a youth ministry driven movement because it had come out of this campus evangelism movement um, driven by Campus Crusade and, and kind of the principles that came from Campus Crusade. Bill Bright was actually, an early, Bill Bright is the founder of Campus Crusade. He was an early speaker at the Campus Evangelism seminars. And so they invited this outside speaker to come and give them the techniques and, and the programs and so forth. Uh, and they had open roles, uh, or more open roles, I'll say, in women's ministry. And we'll see that even more increase when we come to the Boston Movement. For example, in the Friday night student devotionals, sometimes women would say, audible prayers in the presence of men. <laughs> Scandal, I know. Uh, and, and it's easy to joke about that now, but in the Churches of Christ at the time, that truly was scandalous. Uh, and in fact, that's what one of the things that the Crossroads Movement got into a great deal of trouble for. You see, the Crossroads Movement baptized almost all their converts were not from the Church of Christ. They were right out of the world, so they didn't know that women aren't supposed to pass out communion on Sunday. So they, just, they didn't have some of the baggage that comes along with being part of a known group. Yeah. Uh, now here's some of the weaknesses, and you'll see these mirrored as we continue to go, right? So these are not um, distinctive only to the crossroads section of this time. Already at this time, a certain brand of legalism began to emerge, right? A certain way of doing things that could only be done in that way and a certain criteria, set of criteria that needed to be followed or observed or patterned uh, became uh, the pattern there. Uh, along with that, it became very personality driven. 
early on around Chuck Lucas and kind of the, the pattern that he created, right? He, uh, as we'll see with, with Kit McKean, was, uh, was an influential and charismatic leader and he drew people to him yeah. and people wanted to imitate Chuck in many ways, sometimes even to the point of dressing and looking and speaking like, like Chuck Lucas, which we saw and we will see in some of the early days of the Boston movement. Now here's what's interesting. Uh, and this is a weakness or a strength, depending on how you want to put it, because it'll easily contrast with the Boston movement in a moment. In, in the Crossroads movement, the vision was to put a campus ministry at every campus in the United States, which, which is actually a wonderfully bold vision. What we'll see in a moment is, in the Boston movement, the vision was to put a church in every country of the world. So we had the Crossroads movement, which wants to put a campus uh, ministry on every campus in the United States, and we have the Boston Movement, which wants to put a, a church in every country in the world. There was also sexual sin, and there were also abusive practices. Some of the damage that makes its way into the Boston Movement had its roots in the Crossroads Movement. And again, it's not something that, that we're going to intentionally dwell on, but it is something that we want to acknowledge occurred. Uh, and this is, this is part of the narrative, and this is part of the background. All right, we can transition then into the next phase. In 1979, uh, Kip McKean, his wife Elena, um, along with friends of his from Tennessee, Stephen Lisa Johnson, uh, they, they go to uh, the Boston area, Lexington, and there's, there's symbolism here. In Lexington, the beginning, you know, the struggle against the British, uh, the revolutionary, and there was uh, a, a small group who came together and were part of the Lexington Church of Christ, which had been there for a long time, but it was really slowing down and, and possibly even closing its doors. I remember because I was in my middle year at Duke, and they asked me to come and be what was called the 30 would-be disciples. I thought I was already a Christian, and I think I was, uh, but I wanted to finish up where I was at Duke, and I said, I'll join you soon. I came in 1980. Um, they, were, uh, they were elders, uh, Bob Gimple, later Al Baird, who comes from uh, another local Church of Christ. But there was a paradigm shift, because in the Crossroads Movement, the vision, and, and at the end of my time in Duke, I wanted to be a campus minister. The plan was very clear. You, you graduate with your undergraduate, you marry your girlfriend, you go to Abilene or Harding for Church of Christ schools and you get your masters. And then you find a placement somewhere, probably in the United States. Well, this is a very different paradigm. And I, I give it, I think, to his credit, to the credit of Kip McKean and like-minded people, creating a church within a church is not really the ideal way to do this. Um, he wanted to, the support of the church and said, I'll come to Boston, I'll come to Lexington, if the el you, the elders and deacons, if you will support me, uh, and we're going to lose some people before we start adding people. He was very frank about that, and uh, I think he was, he was right in foreseeing the future. Um, I came there in 80. By 81, there was a thing called a discipleship study. I was there when he, he did it, and it was a, a study that you would do with your non-Christian friends, and also we saw the favoring of the term disciple to refer to Christians, even though it appears nowhere in the New Testament of Christians except in the book of Acts. It's a couple dozen times. They use brother, friend, and so forth. And so we had a tremendous focus on evangelism. And just as in Kip's prior ministry in Illinois, 
the things in Boston were just explosive and electric. It, it, it was so excited, it made me so excited. I, I mean, I, I easily got people to come there from Harvard Divinity School. Uh, at, and the, the number of, of, of baptisms, you know, I remember when we first went there, the, the campus ministry, the ministry training program did a project. We researched all the universities in the world. And I heard, we heard uh, uh, cities I'd, I'd never come across before, but cities of five million or 10 million that were probably significant. And, and the vision was international really from the very beginning. Uh, Lexington was a small building, eventually renamed um, the Boston Church of Christ. Should I mention any of these yeah. other things here? No, I think we've covered it well. I'll just I'll add to this. No. So what, hap what happens is they outgrow the Lexington Church of Christ, right? You can probably speak to this as, as well as I can. Uh, very interestingly, the, Boston Church, the Lexington Church of Christ purchases a building in Boston, so they're no longer in Lexington. And so they can't call themselves the Lexington Church of Christ. Technically, they went to Arlington <laughs> after for a couple of years and then... Okay. Yeah. Uh, before they move into that building, the building burns down. And one of the innovations, and, and the Boston Movement and the International Churches of Christ, we would say one of the strengths was, was its uh, ability to innovate. One of the innovations and one of the ways that it moves away from the Churches of Christ is to say, we don't need a building anymore. In fact, we can put far more of our financial resources into mission work and into other kind of benevolence work eventually and into uh, the work of taking care of the ministry if we don't need to sink all of that, fu all of that funding into a building itself. And so in many ways, almost by accident to some degree, uh, what happens... Unless it was arson. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to say? <laughs> It wasn't me. I, had, I was living in London at the time. All right, all right. Uh, that, that what happens is, uh, is that they shift over to this new model, which becomes the model of the International Churches of Christ and a defining model that differentiates it from the Churches of Christ. Now, something else that Doug hinted at that I think is worth just making explicit is one of the, one of the moments or one of the key turning points that happens here is that rather than plant a church within a church, right? So rather than send a, a campus minister to an existing church of Christ to work within that church of Christ and to, uh, to bring about reform and change, there is a moment sometime in the early 80s where it becomes clear to Kip McKean and to others involved that this will be far more effective if we start our own churches, that we cannot... Um, as, as Jesus perhaps might have put it right, pour new wine into old wineskins. And so what we need to do is begin planting our own churches, which is some of the churches that we put here on the list that you can see. These are the early ones. The earliest ones, and they go on and on from here. Um, what happens next are some of the sadder moments in the early history of the Boston movement and the International Churches of Christ. In 1986, uh, they begin a program of what are called reconstructions. Uh, the first one is in Johannesburg, uh, and others occur in various places, San Diego, and so forth. What this is, is at the same time that they're beginning to plant new churches, they are also calling out the quote-unquote remnant within existing churches of Christ. And so they find churches of Christ that already exist whose leaders um, have, um, are persuaded towards what Kip McKean and the Boston Movement are, is doing uh, and are willing to uh, tie themselves in 
And often what would happen is those leaders would then move to Boston, be retrained. Boston would send new leaders to that church, and those new leaders would call that church um, to a reconstruction event and go through individual by individual and have them recommit themselves to full commitment of discipleship as the Boston movement defined it. And so many times, churches would split. Churches of Christ would have splits over these situations. For some of you, that may not sound like a bad thing, but the procedure, I think, in many places was invasive and, and humiliating. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, that is, that is very right. So 87, um, and starting that year, because I remember I heard him speak, uh, do a lesson on this five different times that year, used Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22, a remnant will return. The idea is that even still, among the Church of Christ, the Restoration Movement, there's a remnant of people who are really good-hearted, and they'll come, but we're calling them to come now and be part of the remnant, or we just consider you to be non-Christians. That was a, a horrible thing. Along the way, various people from the Churches of Christ would, in a sense, change allegiance. They would switch over from the Churches of Christ to the Boston Movement. The Boston Movement, by this point, uh, was controversial uh, and had its um, proponents and its critics. And it became a very big deal if a kind of well-known member of the Churches of Christ would come over to the International, or the Boston Movement, we should say at this point. Uh, one of those people was Jerry Jones. And Jerry Jones um, did me the honor of having a very long conversation with me over the phone as I prepared for this. So I want to especially mention him and thank him for that. Um, Jerry Jones uh, was uh, taught Bible and was head of the, of the Bible department at Harding University um, and left Harding University uh, for various reasons, but one of them eventually becomes, because he was sympathetic to certain aspects of the Boston movement, he eventually moves to Boston and aligns himself with Boston. Uh, that becomes a very big deal to the Boston movement, and they, uh, they tout his name. And, well, he becomes um, an elder. Yeah, he becomes an elder in the Boston church, uh, and, and because this gives legitimacy to what it is that, that they are doing. Now, unfortunately, it is not long before Jerry Jones realizes from his point of view that he does not agree to many of the practices that are happening in the Boston movement and no longer wants to align with the Boston movement. He ends up moving to St. Louis in 86 and then comes fully out of the Boston movement in 1987. He then ends up writing three volumes of work uh, entitled What Does the Boston Movement Teach? Uh, and spends uh, at least some part of his time informing the rest of the Church of Christ what are the distinctive features of the Boston movement in order to make sure that anybody who is considering aligning themselves is well aware of what it is that they'll be aligning themselves to. This becomes a pretty devastating moment in some ways for the Boston movement because now they've lost one of the key figures that they liked to, um, to kind of present and say, look, we have the legitimacy. Uh, another figure like Jerry Jones who doesn't end up leaving the Boston movement is uh, George Gerganis, who was known for running the missions work and program both at Harding and then eventually at Abilene Christian University, uh, did very early and pioneering mission work in uh, Japan. And, uh, and then eventually joins the Boston movement, moves to Boston, comes out of retirement, returns to Japan as a missionary because he is so attracted by the evangelistic focus of the Boston movement. And he stays in the Boston movement until his death in 1992. So you have two different kind of versions of that. This guy was a there. giant of a man and a huge heart. Literally. Right after World War II, moves to 
uh, Japan, and then goes back with Frank Kim uh, for the planting of the Tokyo church. The first time I visited Tokyo, I stayed in George's house. When he died, his widow gave me his overcoat, his London, London fog overcoat. So I remember him every winter for both, both weeks in Atlanta. <laughs> Uh, during this time, in the mid to late 80s, the Boston movement uh, is refocusing certain areas. W one of the things that happens is in London, uh, they, they take up a love offering. They take up an offering to help the poor and the needy. In the London church, they're beginning to come into contact with people who have far less means than many of the people in the church. And they realize this is an area potentially of neglect for us so far. And, uh, and then in 1987, Doug Arthur, uh, preaches a message to the, to the larger um, assembled group. I think it's a World uh, Boston Mission Seminar right. in 87. And, uh, and, and calls upon the church to begin helping the poor and the needy. Some years after that is when Hope Worldwide is formed officially as an official, although they, although they had been starting this practice even before 1991. But in 1991, Hope Worldwide is formed as something of the benevolent arm of the Boston movement uh, as a way of taking care of the, the Or needed. you could say the Boston movement was the evangelistic arm of hope. <laughs> Just turn it around. <clears throat> I, like, I like that way better. Um, all right, let's do some assessments for as the Boston movement phase comes to an end. Well, it, what was the case? Was there something else? What no, I think the, this is, yeah. What was the case at that time, which is the case now? I don't think I'm being mean. Uh, the churches of Christ are shrinking. The mainline church of Christ. I mean, there are bright spots here and there, but overall, they've been in a period of decline for a long time. And honestly, so has the ICOC. Uh, so uh, I don't think I'm being mean about that, but uh, the critics from within, those who love the church, uh, mention those things a lot. But there's a perception, and it's true. So while the mainline churches are getting smaller, more and more churches are being planted around the world. So we went to London in 82, uh, Chicago wasn't technically a planting, but New York was in 83, then Toronto, and after that, it was all over South, uh, uh, South, Carolina, uh, South America and Asia and everywhere, and eventually with hundreds and hundreds of churches, um, you know, 600 or so. So the formal split happens, I think, in part because of the remnant doctrine. But when you're going to say, if you're not under our authority, we don't consider you Christians, that's, a, that's just not good. I, maybe I said it too strongly before, but I just think that's wrong. Uh, that's too much like Diotrephes should be like Demetrius, referring to 3rd John. Anyway, you can uh, see the split, you can see what happens, you look through the various documents, and eventually uh, the Boston movement has changed. Uh, its uh, locus, its center of power, you could say, from Boston to Los Angeles. And uh, Kip moves from Boston to, Boston's a big town, a big city, but not like Los Angeles, which is larger than many countries that I've visited before. And a new name is suggested by John Vaughn of Fuller uh, Theological Seminary, and that name is? Uh, the International Churches of Christ. So what happens you in like kind of the late 80s and then into the early 90s, the Churches of Christ would publish directories, right? Churches of Christ still publish directories to some degree, although it's... Like where the saints meet. Yeah, where the, rec the records are not kept as easily or as well today. Um, but these would be published directories to know who, where all the Churches of Christ are, how big they are, and so forth. At some point, they have to make a decision. Do we continue to include Boston Movement churches in the Church of Christ directories? 
And uh, Lynn McMillan and other people who are involved in kind of the editing of these directories and, um, and then also the publications of various Church of Christ periodicals and so forth. At some point between 87 and 88, depending on which directory and periodical you're looking at, make a decision to say, at this point we've really reached a stage in which Boston movement churches are not part of the greater you know, association of the churches of Christ. And so when these directories get published in the late 80s, early 90s, they no longer include Boston churches. That's what prompts John Vaughn at Fuller, who is a church growth expert, to actually contact the International Churches of Christ or the Boston movement at the time and to say, listen, how do you want me to list you? Do you want me to list you as part of the Churches of Christ or to list you as something else? They actually go back and forth a little bit on this, and he says, well, I don't know, I, I think we're, this is Roger Lamb who's having a conversation with John Vaughn, and says, what, do you, what would you call us? We're, we're not really the Churches of Christ. And John Vaughn comes back and says, well, you're really kind of the international Churches of Christ. You have a much more global focus in some ways. The, the leaders of the Boston movement at the time discuss that name and say, we like it. Pr print that. Go with that. Well, the alternative, as Kip would joke, was cult. <laughs> so, we'll go with I International Church of Christ. <laughs> His joke, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to say a word on the assessment here, and then we'll move on to the next? Yeah, I know. I'm so t you know, when you live through it. <laughs> Do you, you want me to say a word on the assessment? <laughs> no, there are things that you, you, you want to say. I mean, you, could, you watch this happening before your eyes. Uh, but th there were, you know, there are various brotherhood publications like Firm Foundation and Christian Chronicle and and they used to uh, list all the churches that had 100 baptisms a year or more. And at, at first, in the list, um, well, we weren't there at all. And then we'd appear. But after a few years, we were dominating the whole list. And that must have been discouraging uh, because we're clearly talking past each other. Strengths, evangelism, no doubt that's a strength. And the thousands of people being baptized, just the energy. You could say the youth, although it wasn't just youth. It, was, it, it had moved beyond. Not that Crossroads was only youth. Crossroads had a lot of older people too, but that was kind of the, uh, the, the breadbasket. Multiracial. I think in the Boston movement, it was easy. I mean, you just reach out to everyone. You didn't ask racial questions. And so the international churches are really integrated. I mean, where I go in Atlanta, we're probably 45 or 50% black, maybe 35, 40% white, and then Asian. We're weak on Hispanic, only about 40 Hispanic members out of the thousand plus but and let me just say a word on that mm. because that is so distinctive when yeah. compared to the churches of Christ or the um, Christian churches which the, tend to be monochromatic yeah right? the churches of Christ um, have s struggled considerably with integrating white churches and black churches and this is something that almost from its beginning the International Church of the Christ or the Boston movement simply figured out and and was quite good at and that's a major strength, especially, I would say, now in the world that we live in where we're beginning to recognize how vitally important that is to the body of Christ and to what it is to be called the people of God, to have that kind of diversity and, and, and racial integration, and to have had the <laughs> ICOC focus on that so early, I think is a great strength to the ICOC. Which, if you're a member of the ICOC, you're probably a bit blind to that. I mean, you know it, but you don't understand an expert on... Um, racial diversity, a 75-year-old man comes to church with me a couple years ago, and he's just blown away. And I say, it's not just Sunday. We 
we're with each other in the week. We even marry each other. Now, I'm not trying to say that there's, there's no racism in the ICOC. That would be uh, silly. Hardly. But it's a great strength. Women's ministry, um, the international focus, uh, there are many strengths. But they're weaknesses. Some are inherited from the Crossroads movement, the personality cult, uh, this charismatic leadership model, which is not the best model if you want real-time feedback and you want maturity. Um, sexual sin. Resistance to criticism, which was called spiritual pornography. Don't read it, it's pornography. It's not really pornography, I think, unless it's got lewd photographs. But it was a way of managing, of controlling, and increasing arrogance toward outsiders. You see, up until 87, we went to each other's conferences. When we planted the church in London, we cooperated with all the churches of Christ. We tried. I don't know how humble we were, but that did come to an end. Especially once it was proclaimed that if you're not with us, you're not Christians. One of the significant lacks at this point in the movement, and then as it continued as well, was a lack of deep, formal biblical education and training, a lack of an awareness of church history, really in some ways a lack of awareness of the Churches of Christ and where this Boston movement or International Church of Christ had come from and come out of. And so most of the people in the ICOC who had any kind of biblical degree or biblical training were people who had come out of the Churches of Christ and had gotten that degree before the Boston movement kind of existed or as it was still crossroads transitioning into Boston movement. Mm. There came a point when that was no longer valued and no longer emphasized and no longer even encouraged, in fact, sometimes actively discouraged uh, there's the passage, of course, in Acts that talks about these ordinary and unschooled men, and that was emphasized considerably, that you don't need biblical training in order to be a minister yeah. in the kingdom. Of course, the apostles um, only had three years of biblical training with Jesus. Right. <laughs> slight, slight difference. Uh, I can remember living in, in Boston at the end of my time in Boston, expressing to the leaders in my Boston campus ministry that I was interested in getting a theological degree, a biblical studies degree, and being discouraged even then in the early 2000s by an elder saying, for one, in one case, the Bible has already been translated, you don't need to learn Greek, or things like that, which may just be a, a, you know, an individual case, but I think, unfortunately, is largely representative of the whole in terms of the attitude towards biblical education and understanding, which I find to be, and this I'm speaking for myself, as I am for all of this, um, I find to be terribly sad because of how much potentially could have been avoided, how much damage and hurt potentially could have been avoided if people within the Boston movement had continued to seek training and understanding and awareness outside of the movement, if nothing else, in church history, so that they could know and not repeat many of the mistakes that would, could easily have been avoided, which ended up being repeated, not just in church history, but within the Crossroads movement to the, to the Boston movement. The Boston movement cut out the Crossroads movement from the story. And a common question I'm still asked around the world, wait, you were baptized when? 1977. What, how can you be a Christian? There was no church until 1979. That's when the church came back to the planet Earth. You know, people who think that. Go ahead, Nick. Um, we're here. Okay, so uh, 
I'm going to use some terminology here, which is, which is a little bit strange. We're, we're going to talk about ICOC 1.0 and then ICOC 2.0 and then kind of 3.0 reverting back to 2.1. This language will make more sense in the second class. But what you could say is sometime in the early 90s, it transitions into what is generally known and becomes the International Churches of Christ. So in 1989, world sector leaders are formed. They begin to, to divide up the world into sectors, into regions. And again, there is this wonderful global international focus of planting a church uh, in the entire world, right? Spreading the church to the entire world. Uh, Doug has already mentioned how basically the center of the movement moves from Boston to Los Angeles. The Los Angeles church uh, International Church is uh, planted in 1989, just a few months later because of the leaders who initially planted that church uh, having some difficulties. Kit McKean ends up moving his family to LA initially just to oversee a transition time, but eventually decides that they need to stay. And so they, um, again, shift the center in a sense from Boston to Los Angeles. And by 1992, Kit McKean is writing um, material where he, where he describes Los Angeles and his intention for Los Angeles as becoming a super church, right? What we would call maybe today a mega church in many ways. And this is part of what is already becoming a kind of a mega church movement in greater Christianity in the United States at this time. So in this sense, the ICOC is not different in the trends of what it's trying to imitate uh, elsewhere. Let me just cut in briefly. Of course. Before 2003, as I recall, some of you would know the numbers, I think the average attendance of an ICOC church was about 500, which in other groups, other denominations, that typically only be at the top 3%. Very few would have that number, but for in most places, that was a pretty common number, 500 people. Yeah. Uh, we're skipping, obviously, a great deal of material here, but what happens um, soon, 1994, is they formalize this desire to, uh, to, to evangelize the entire world. The world sector leaders produce a document that they call the Evangelization Proclamation. We'll have a picture of it on the next slide or in two slides here. The Evangelization Proclamation. They sign it all as though it is the Declaration of Independence or something like that or the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and what it is is a six-year plan. The year 2000, I assume simply because it's a nice round number, uh, is, is kind of agreed upon as the goal. Well, they mistakenly thought the new millennium started that year. That maybe they could have had a whole other year, year zero. if they had realized they could go to 2001. Um, and, and so they choose the year 2000, so they come up with a six-year plan to plant a church in every country that has a city of at least 100,000 people, which give or take, depending on how you do the numbers, is around 170 or so countries. And, um, and the idea, the principle behind all of this is the idea that one of the mandates of the New Testament is to evangelize the world in a single generation. And the scripture that is often used to justify this is Colossians 1.23 which incidentally, as a New Testament scholar, it's difficult for me not to mention, doesn't say that. Um, and, it's, and it's very hard really to get that idea directly from Colossians 1.23. Nonetheless, this becomes something of the mantra of the movement, right? D disciple the world, evangelize the world in our generation, in one generation. And I think one way to describe, um, in many ways, why the ICOC falls apart is because of this 
unnecessarily abbreviated timeline in which they gave themselves to evangelize the world. Six years to plant a church in every nation of the world, which meant that as the date, as the deadline was approaching, people would be sent to some of the hardest countries in the world to evangelize who had very little experience with what they were doing. People who had been Christians sometimes for less than a year, right, would be sent to a, a Muslim country or a country that was very unfriendly to Christianity and be told, it is up to you to plant our church in this country or we fail this proclamation. And so the pressure was enormous. But still the Lord gave a lot of baptisms in this time of this concerted effort. And I always am a bit mixed in my, I mean, I meet someone who I think, you know, really your church shouldn't have been planted then. Those guys weren't ready. But if that's true, well, then you, you never would have become a Christian yourself, at least not, not through our help. Yeah. So it's, uh, you can see the hand of God in both ways. And, and that's why we've tried to emphasize as much as we can the strengths and the weaknesses here, right? There is, there is good and there is bad that is occurring. In the year 2000, is uh, the ICOC celebrates the completion of that goal, or at least we could say the, the technical completion of that goal. They do, by, by their own definition, in a sense, achieve the goal that they had stated, although several churches of those 170 may have one, two, three, four people total uh, in this church and, and are in either dire need to be replanted because they've already fallen apart or in dire need of further growth to really call them a church at all. Um, by this time, though, as you can see on this slide here, uh, 42 churches have over 1,000 in attendance. 15 have over 3,000 in attendance. There are seven churches in the larger network of the ICOC that have over 5,000 in attendance. And I can remember being in Los Angeles or in other places where conferences would be held where Kit McKean or somebody uh, would say something like, the ICOC is defining Christianity for this city or that city. The LA International Church of Christ is defining Christianity for Los Angeles. And, and that was the impression and that was the goal. And most members were totally unaware that there are other Christians outside. This is the evangelization proclamation, the prince a bit small, you can find it online. <laughs> uh, quick assessment, it's a grand vision. Uh, there's unsustainable growth but uh, a grand vision. Uh, the growth rate is actually, the growth rate is in decline even in the early 1990s and there's a true crisis in retention every bit as serious as the crisis of retention of the mainline Church of the Christ that had been frequently been mentioned in an unfavorable way uh, from the 1970s on. Unity and uniformity were quite confused and more and more criticism, not just from outside, but from inside the ICOC. By the mid to late 90s, many people were very unhappy, writing letters, have, having meetings, and a lot went on behind the scenes. And, and so that brings us to the transition, you could say, although we don't get there till really the end of this period and then into the next period that we'll talk about, of if what we're kind of calling ICOC 2.0. So there is growing unrest, right? There is earnest critique both, and has been outside the movement for quite a while, now earnest critique inside the movement as well. There are already attempts to reform early on in the 2000s. So for instance, uh, Gordon Ferguson and Wyndham Shaw put out a book called Golden Rule Leadership 
that is all about consensus leadership, a model for how to lead a church. Uh, Wyndham Shaw and, and Gordon Ferguson at that time are, are elders in the Boston Church of Christ. This book is well-received in certain churches, not well-received in other churches, actually banned in some churches of the ICOC, which is kind of incredible. Um, and, and the idea here is to say we need to move away from a single person leading a church, and we need to move away from kind of a harsh authoritarian way of leading a church and move towards a consensus model of leadership. Plurality. A plurality where it is a group of people who are leading. Uh, it's at this same time or in this same year that Kip McKean steps down as the leader of the world sector leaders and therefore the leader of the international churches of Christ. Initially, he takes what is called a sabbatical, what they call, he calls a sabbatical. Within the following year, it becomes clear that he can no longer continue in his role as, as the leader of this movement. Uh, and so he resigns in a more official capacity. Um, even before this, the Boston Church of Christ, which, uh, of which I am a member at the time, and so I can remember this meeting, uh, issues a public apology uh, and, has, and has a meeting where, where the leaders apologize to the congregation, a congregation-wide meeting in 2002 where they apologize. Later that year... There were like five or 6,000 at that time? Yeah, over, over 5,000 people in the Boston Church of Christ at this point, um, correct. Um, Later that year, the world sector leaders meet in Long Beach, California, and um, depending on how you want to word this, they, they disband or they are disbanded, um, they, they lose influence, the world sector leaders begin to resign or begin to realize that they need to resign. I would say they, they preferred to have autonomy, autonomy within their world sectors instead of being under one head, uh, one you know, corporate head. Yeah. Uh, and then one of the watershed moments uh, of the International Church of Christ history occurs, one that I imagine many of you, if you know this story, are familiar with, or at least have heard this term before. Uh, an evangelist in the London ICOC. A Canadian. A Can who, who's from Canada. Um, I don't know why that would be relevant, but. Uh, <laughs> who's generally friendly, therefore. Uh, <laughs> releases a letter initially to leaders but eventually to the body as a whole he releases it online or it gets published uh, and made public online at the church website at the icoc website so it's it's the first draft of a letter but unbeknownst to those of us who received it he had bcc he had blind copied other people who thought well i'm not waiting for the second draft i'm going to send this out so it went viral before mm -hmm. we even knew the word <laughs> Uh, he entitles this letter, Honest to God, and, and part of the reason that this is, a, and it's a long letter, 50 over 50 pages long, uh, part of the reason that this is such a watershed moment is because here is an, a leader on the inside who wants to continue and stay on the inside, is not leaving the ICOC, and yet who has issued a very grand and sweeping criticism of the practices, the authorita authoritarian practices and, and other practices in the ICOC in a way that no leader up to that point had kind of dared to do, at least as publicly as Henry Crete does. Now I think it's worth saying that if you go back, for instance, and look at Jerry Jones's material, uh, the elder whom I mentioned who was part of the Boston movement for a while and then left, what, what Jerry Jones says is not very different than what Henry Crete says. But no one had been listening on the inside. 
And what Henry Crete manages to do somehow is to make people listen on the inside as well as those who had already been listening on the outside. Mm. And so this, in many ways, causes the ICOC to implode overnight. Uh, they have open forums, they have town hall meetings, uh, many leaders, and some of you are, are present here who experience this, um, many leaders are highly, um, I don't know what the right word would be, uh, criticized by, by their congregations for their practices. Um, a large majority of the paid staff of the International Churches of Christ within a year or two's time is no longer on staff. The staff numbered in the thousands yeah. before. Uh, by the end of this period, depending on how you want to draw the lines, at least 40,000 people leave the International Churches of Christ, which at that point is a 30% drop in membership. The height of the International Churches of Christ membership-wise is 135,000 people. 40,000 40, people leave after that. Some people had left in 2002. In some places, this wave uh, hit earlier. In some places, later. Okay, the DNA. Um, I think we've implied a lot of this. Yeah. On the positive side, the commitment, the evangelism, the, the innovation, the diversity, uh, even the compassion for the poor. Um, so many things that were great. And in most places, continue to be great. But one, what's been unhealthy a form of discipling or mentoring that's too controlling. And there's a way to be a mentor and a father and a mother and an uncle or an aunt, and there's a way not to do that. Putting uh, new Christians into leadership, uh, you know, the Bible says don't put a new neophyte into leadership, but that's probably talking about at a significant level. But it takes someone who's just, just graduated from high school and say, here, you're in charge of 100 people. That's a dangerous thing, I think. Weak or non-existent eldership. There only, I mean, fewer than 10 churches even had elderships at the time of the six or 700, and it was very hard to have elders, and I think this is a reaction against the pushback from elders in the mainline church in that period of the 60s and 70s, which was quite turbulent. Minimal biblical knowledge, and lingo, which was used in some places and other places, they never heard of it, but I remember visiting in South America and Europe, they would say, what about the OTC? What are you talking about? The one true church. Oh, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. We're the one true church. No, that's what we've been taught. Oh my goodness. Or God's modern day movement as though there's no other movement. Enforced tithing and pressure, which Nick has mentioned already, to evangelize the world in one generation. Although at this time, it was at least two generations into the movement. <laughs> Actually, they're coming up to their third generation. They're still saying that I'll do it in one generation. Well, you know, right now, it, the movement, as I would define it, is 52 years old. Uh, we realize that we've come essentially to the end of our time, so I'm going to take advantage of you for one moment because I assume that you're probably staying for the second class. We'll extend over our time for just a minute. We'll give you a 15-minute break. And then, as I've said, our second class has far less material, and so we'll have, I think, a great deal of time for questions and answers in that class. So this is our last slide, so let me leave you with this and then, and then release you for 15 minutes here. And we wanted, we wanted to end with this, again, not because this is what we want to dwell on, but because we wanted to make sure that we understand and acknowledge this. Uh, as I was preparing for this class, I received uh, actually quite a great deal of communication from people that I do not know uh, once this was advertised. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people that you don't know. Yeah. 
<laughs> telling me and, and warning me that, that the ICOC is, is a dangerous entity to be involved in. Um, and, and so I, I want to acknowledge that there are people who have been hurt and there are people who are still hurt and who are still processing and walking through what the crossroads and then the Boston movement and then the International Churches of Christ uh, have done. There, there have been abusive practices and these range from verbal to physical abuse to sexual abuse to in particular, in many cases, leadership abuse. And, and we want to acknowledge that damage. It's important to acknowledge that. It is striking when you stop and look at the numbers and you realize that about 450,000 people were baptized into the, and let's just call it the International Churches of Christ. So from 1979 all the way up to 2002, about 450,000 people were baptized. Over 300,000 of those people left. So well over two-thirds, about 70% of the people who were baptized into the International Churches of Christ from 1979 to 2002 left the International Churches of Christ. That's significant. It is uh, more likely, you are more likely to run into a former member of the ICOC than you are to run into a current member, even in 2002. There was a great deal of disrespect, and we could say this on both sides, right, shown to other Christian groups. Uh, in the churches of Christ, especially in the churches of Christ, is reciprocating this by far in the early days. And in our second class, we'll talk about the shared blame that occurs here. So we don't want to minimize the role of the churches of Christ either here. Uh, and then this one, I think, is particularly poignant. What really started in many ways as a reform movement within the churches of Christ and could have been a very healthy reform movement was a campus ministries-driven movement saying to the, the people in the church, this church is beginning to die, and we have a way of, re of reviving it again. Work with us here. What started as a reform movement became its own separate sect, you might say, not in the, um, in the sectarian sense, right, in the, um, in the anthropological sense of sect, right? It, it became a split-off movement of its own. And for a great deal of time, right, between the kind of late 90s to early 2000s, there was almost no communication whatsoever between the two groups. More often than not, and I experienced this firsthand many times, as you went to a uh, mainline Church of Christ website, there would often be a disclaimer somewhere at the bottom of the website that would say, in no way are we associated with the International Churches of Christ. Right? And, and they felt the need to make that clear to anybody who might be interested. Right. Um, and, so, and then finally we get to the period where we're ending this part of the session. In around 2002, the International Church of Christ enters into a serious period of reevaluation and redefinition. And that's where we will leave you for the next 15 minutes or We've so. We looked at uh, dates. <laughs> we talked about the DNA and each movement, each group does have its own DNA. And then we looked at damage. Yeah. So, so we'll see you at uh, 315. 315.